Last night there were three-fifths of the group, tonight there are four-fifths of the group, and then Sunday night, the other part, the guy part, the one guy part, will we'll be with him also. Thanks, y'all. It was great. Amen. Um, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity just to sit at your feet and hear what you have to say, Holy Spirit. So just transcend anything that I say and speak the things that you want us to hear. And then release among us just the evidence of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. I referenced this verse last night. Let me read it to you again. This is from Luke chapter 2. Speaking of Christ, this is what it says about him when he was 12. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in grace with God and man. And I mentioned to you last night that the word increase here is just the word to advance. He kept advancing in wisdom and stature and grace with God and with men. Well, tonight I want to talk some more a little bit about um, have advancing in grace with people. Um, just to reorient us to last night a little bit. And so what we were saying last night is everything in the Christian life, everything that you are and all the character that you might have is rooted in your union with Jesus. But also everything that you do that has authenticity and real influence and impact is also rooted in your union with Christ because Christ is the Christian life. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can live the Christian life. He's the only one who can live a life of holiness in us and it's all by grace. It's a free gift. He's the only one who can live a life through us of compassionate love and signs and wonders transforming ministry. And it's all by grace. It's all a gift. But it's all Christ. And so when we talk about, tonight I want to talk about uh, our assignment. Our identity is that we're in Christ. And so I don't want to repeat all that from last night. Our identity is that we're in Christ, but our assignment is that we're called, regardless of what particular gifting you might have, or what particular vocation you might have, your assignment is to manifest the fullness of Christ and to bring heaven to earth in whatever that place is. And it's so important that we understand that. We all have the same assignment. We all carry that same thing. And, we have, and uh, we'll see that some more in just a minute. But we want to advance in grace. We want to we grow in grace in our appropriation of all that Jesus is because of our union with Him. Again, we were placed, when you became a Christian, what makes you a Christian is that you were placed into the life of Christ and into the story He tells. So that Jesus can live that life and tell that story through your unique humanity and personality in whatever situation and circumstance He's placed you in. Whether in a marriage or in wherever you work or wherever you shop or you go to school, that's what Jesus wants to be Jesus in those places, in those situations. And he wants you to display the character of Christ, but he also wants to display through you his ability to transform a situation and to transform a life supernaturally through you. Um, there's a place in Haggai's too 
verse 7, it says that Jesus is the desire of the nations. And whatever a person's needing, whatever out there in the world, whatever they're longing for, they may call it one thing or call it something else, but every person is longing for a real encounter with God. They all, every person's, their great desire, though they may not know it, it just may be represented by some great need, is Jesus. It may be the need for wisdom, or the need for healing, or wholeness, or help, or transformation. But whatever it might be, their desire is for Jesus. Because Jesus is the desire of the nations. We were created for Him. And every broken place in every human being is longing for Christ, who has come to be God among us incarnationally. They're longing for Him to be the solution outside of themselves. Uh, I love that scripture. Paul referred to himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as a man in Christ. And if you understand that you're a man or a woman or a boy or a girl in Christ, that's who you are, then you understand that your ministry flows out of that. If it doesn't, again, it won't be supernatural. It'll be something you try to do, and you'll even deceive yourself in thinking you can get educated enough to do it successfully. If you get enough skills and enough skill sets, you can make it happen. Um, but there were people who were part of the disciples of Jesus that weren't exactly, they, they didn't have PhDs. Paul was a really smart guy, and a very educated guy, but Peter and some of the others were fishermen. The first people that the angels, we talked about that last night, revealed that the Messiah had been born were shepherds. They weren't highly educated people. They may not have even been able to read or write. So Jesus isn't looking for a skill set of people. He's looking for people who are in the school of Christ who can manifest their union with Christ um, not just in a life of character and holiness but a life of supernatural compassion and his supernatural capacity to change a life even in a moment. You're the only body that Jesus has on the earth and there's still a chance for every human being out there to actually have an encounter with Jesus, to encounter God because they, you pass them by. So it says in John 9 about the man who was blind. It says he was born blind. And it says, and Jesus passed him by. And you and I pass by people every single day who need to encounter the living, resurrected Christ. You're a living testimony that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says this. And, with, and the word great is literally the word mega. And with mega power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And mega grace was upon them all. I've got some notes here, so I don't stray too much. But a couple of places I want to show you. This is a classic passage from... Philippians chapter 3. This is what Paul says. He says, That I may know him. And the word, if you like to study the Bible, you know the word here. There are two words in the Greek language for knowing or knowledge. One is learning. The other is experience. I know this by experience. And this is the word to know by experience. That I might experience him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, why did Jesus suffer for people? 
So there are three simple things he's saying here. I want to experience his presence. That's intimacy. I want to experience his supernatural power. That's his adequacy. And I want to experience his passion. That's his ministry. And driven by his passion, which is the, the greatest aspect of a life of holiness, driven by his passion, here is the issue. We have the capacity, because we're in union with Christ, to do something about human suffering. The same thing that Jesus would do if he were here. And here's the truth. He is here. And he's clothed in your humanity. This is Romans chapter 13. It says, verse 14, And put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. He talks about being light and darkness. The word put on is the word simply to sink into. You're in Christ, so now just sink into that. And then take that life out for a spin. It's not just about you and your own personal comfort and your own personal deliverance from sin's power. Though it has to start there. It has to start with your own transformation. Or you're not giving away or you're not manifesting something that's authentic. So it's got to start with your own transformation by the very life of Christ that's lived out victoriously in you. But from that place, you've got to be able to release the life of Christ that Jesus lives supernaturally through you. And he says, just sink into that, because that's who you are. So when we talk about ministry, we talk about God's calling for us to fulfill our assignment, to bring heaven to earth into a world of darkness, you have to first understand your identity. Because if you don't, you'll try to find your identity in your ministry. In your assignment and that's the worst thing in the world that can happen because then you'll start measuring how successful you think you are in your assignment to other people and then if you don't think you're as successful as they are then you'll think you're a failure um, God will determine where your assignments fulfilled that's your vocation your ministry gifting but the assignment is the same because you are in Christ, seated in the heavenly places, you live under an open heaven. You don't have to pray for an open heaven. You don't have to beg God for an open heaven. You carry an open heaven everywhere you go. And so you carry an open heaven. Therefore, you, you carry the reality of heaven into every situation and with every encounter you have with a human being. God wants us just to stop long enough to give that away. Okay? Because it's not just about you. And the reason it's not just about you, because Jesus has never been just about him. He came and gave his life away. It's about you, so that he might, by you, give his life away to others. Jesus lives his life as you, that he might give himself away through you to others, which is always, always done. Blessed, that's what it said about Abraham, blessed that you might be a blessing. But if you don't know the blessing personally, being blessed of your own union with Christ and your daily walk with Him, if you, don't know the, if you don't know the wonders personally of His presence and the power of His resurrection setting you free from sin's power, then you'll never be able to do anything about the passion that's burning in your heart to give away to others. Um, so there's a few scriptures, and I want, I'm really asking the Lord to help me to not wear you out and linger too much. Um, 
When, well, let me just say this to you. Let me start here. This is Mark chapter 1. Because when I talk to you about sharing the gospel, in our culture, we think that means learning how to lead somebody to Christ. And then going out and getting them to pray the prayer. So that they've accomplished the Baptist bar mitzvah. And they've prayed the prayer and asked Jesus to come into their heart. And now that's done. You've shared the gospel. Well, that's certainly a part of the good news. But look what Jesus said about the gospel. In chapter 1 of Mark, um, in verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, or the good news. What's the good news? The good news is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We invite people who've never received Christ before to receive Christ, so that they might experience and live in the reality of the kingdom. But if you ever, if you ever notice that Jesus not one time in ministering the kingdom to people, the gospel to people, ever went to anybody and said, would you like to ask me to come live in your heart? Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. That's all, uh, you understand? There's nothing wrong with that. But what Jesus did is he found somebody who was suffering under the weight of the kingdom of darkness. And he demonstrated the kingdom of heaven and had an encounter with them that changed their life. And that was his invitation. How would you like to live in a kingdom and under a realm that's like that? Where the goodness of God is the atmosphere that you live in. So when I talk to you about sharing the gospel, it's not about asking somebody to pray the prayer. I would bet you if you prayed for somebody and they got healed, and you said to them, now that's what the kingdom of heaven's like. Would you like to be a citizen of that kingdom? They'll probably say yes. And it'll save you a lot of time of going through whatever you memorize as your deal. Um, again, think about it. That's what Jesus did. That's what he did in the book of Acts. Constantly going forth, demonstrating the kingdom. And people encountering the kingdom then followed him because they were basically saying, I want to be a part of that kingdom. This is Matthew chapter 4. This is verse 17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here, is at hand. Um, let's see. Verse, 30, uh, verse 23 of Matthew 4. And Jesus was going about in all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and doing what? And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went into all Syria. And they brought to him all who were, who were sick, who were ill, who had various diseases, the demoniacs, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them all. That's the gospel. That Jesus wants you to be a part of a kingdom where the goodness of God and the power of God can transform your life and set you free from the works of the enemy. It starts with the power of sin to control you. But it's more than just that. Um, today in our Eucharist, noon Eucharist, we've seen a couple of fun things happen this week. One happened this week was...
Um, I had a word, like, and I can only tell you my stories. I'm sure some other people got some other stories, but I had a word Tuesday morning. Girls, remember, that, is there anybody here who has a mother named Mary? Because I think God wants to heal your mother. And nobody raised their hand. But sometimes you get words that just stick to your ribs, and you just know that you know that you know, even though it's obvious that you don't doesn't seem like you know. So I must have asked that question about three times, and nobody raised their hand. It was a pretty decent group. And so I thought, well... Maybe it'll be at noon, but that word's in me. So at our noon Eucharist, we had a good group of people there again. I gave the word again. Is there anybody here who's got a mother whose name is Mary? Because God wants to heal her. Not one person raised their hand or acknowledged it at all. Well, as soon as the Eucharist is over, we have a one o'clock um, uh, rector's council, leadership council. And I thought, well, maybe it'll be in the rector's council. And I, that kind of came, came up from here. Because it couldn't come from here, because I know everybody in that rector's council, and I know all their mothers. My mother's dead. My brother's mother's dead, because the same mother. <laughs> Greg Clemens' mother's dead. Craig Stahl's mother's teeny. Uh, Dan Taylor's mother's not alive. Um, I know Jed's mother's, I forget her name, it's not Mary. There was not anybody in that room whose mother's name was Mary. And I went in that room and I said, does anybody here have a mother named Mary? And Jed goes, my stepmother's name is Mary. Oh. And I said, well, I believe God wants to heal her, Jed. And so remind me before we finish to pray for her. But we, were, we talked, I probably did most of the talk, we talked about a bunch of stuff and forgot to pray for her. So on the, on the way home, I called Jed up. I said, Jed, we forgot to pray for your, your mother, your stepmother Mary. He said, Bishop, what's so funny is that's what I call her, Mother Mary. And I said, well, you need to call her and pray for her. Because it, but Jed said in the meeting that she had a back issue. Well, she had some kind of sadical issue. So he texts me later. He calls Mother Mary up, prays for her, and he hangs up the phone with her shouting praises because God healed her. Today at our Eucharist, um, I was walking by the altar rail that has the people who are getting prayer. And I'm walking by all of them, just serving them communion. And I go by this person, I see her hand, and nothing about her hand looked arthritic. I don't know why it made me think arthritis. And it didn't, I didn't think she had arthritis in her hand. I didn't know what. I just said, I just stopped. I said, I served everybody. I said, do you have arthritis in your body? She said, yes, I do, in my knees. And I said, well, I don't know what you're going to get prayed for, but whoever prays for you, make sure they pray about your knees too, because I believe God's going to heal you. And so a lady in our church was praying for her when the service was over. They were still praying. I went down there, and when the lady got through praying for this lady, I said, so how do your knees feel? Stand up. Let's check it out. And she stands up, and I said, what does it feel like? She said, there's heat in my knees. Well, I knew what that meant. I said, so there's no pain in your knees? She said, there's no pain. There's just heat in my knees. I said, God's healing your knees. And she, when she came down, she, she, she could hardly stand up because of the arthritis in her knees. And she couldn't squat down. And I, I don't know if that was her son that was with her. I'm not sure who that was. Kelly, do you know? Anyway, but she began squatting down, walking around, going, I couldn't do any of these things. And God healed her. Now, cancer is no more difficult to God than knees are. It just seems more difficult to us. There's a verse in Scripture um, in the Song of Solomon that says this, and for those of you who came to the Song, if any of you came to the Song of Solomon conference, um, there's a couple of places that I want in chapter 7. 
Song of Solomon is a story about a Christian. It's a, it's a type, it's a metaphor about a Christian. Every person who's born again is in union with Christ. But not every person who's born again understands that or is in pursuit of the experience of that. We don't grow into union. We grow because we are in union with Christ. We don't strive for union. We thrive from union. There's a big difference. And every Christian's in Christ. Every Christian's in union with Christ. But the, the story in the Song of Solomon is about a believer who's decided to make the pursuit of their life to discover everything that there is to discover and to experience everything that there is to experience and to manifest everything that there is to manifest about being in union with Christ. To go after fullness in terms of experience. To advance in grace. You don't get more grace. Jesus just advanced. He took advanced courses and he stewarded grace and appropriated grace and manifested grace in places. And so that's what I want. See, I don't need more grace to be able to raise the dead. But I need to advance in appropriating that, to see in that, and to believe in that. You with me? I want to go strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. There are several things in my life, even just in the last few days, I said, Lord, I'm cutting that out because it's become a distraction. Because what I'm after in my experience, I'm 66 years old. I don't want to wait and experience it all when I go to heaven. What I'm after in my experience and what I want to transfer in my position of leadership, I can't afford to be distracted by this. It may be fun, but it's, so, it's not sinful. It's just so unimportant that I don't have time to be distracted. Because I want to advance as far as I can advance in grace with God and impacting people as far as I can go. You with me? Um, Song of Solomon 7, it says in verse um, 2, the last part of verse 2, in the Song of Solomon, when you get towards the end of the book, here's a believer that's advanced in grace. They've discovered more. They've experienced more. They're manifesting more of their union with Christ, the life of Christ, the likeness of Christ um, than they had before. And as they're growing in maturity, one of the things that happens, the more and more you grow in your experience of your union with Christ, that last part, the passion part of Jesus begins to take over. And more and more, you want to see the harvest. You want to participate in the harvest. You want to be the presence of Christ and the power of Christ in other people's lives. You want to be the body through which he ministers his solution to their suffering. And so it says here, your navel, um, your, your, your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. There's a bunch in there, but I just wanted you to see a belly like a heap of wheat it's just a belly um, that's full of harvest. And one of the things I'm watching in my own experiences, I'm growing in the Lord over the years, is that I have a belly filled with harvest. It's just in my belly, and it's filling me. And what I pray for is that, for all of us, and some of you have heard this before, but God will strike a note, He'll sing a song again in your heart, and that he will awaken you to have um, a harvest in your belly in a way like you've never known before. And that you'll burn with passion to see people 
experience um, wholeness and freedom and healing. Now there's another place in this uh, chapter 7 where it says, this is a fascinating verse to me. We preached on this a few weeks ago, some while back. He says, your head, talking about the believer, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. And the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. Now, Carmel is referenced to chapter 18 of 1 Kings, where the amazing miracles took place that were stewarded in the life of Elijah. So let me give you a really brief sketch so we don't get all, you know, taught, um, lost in the weeds of all this. But Elijah had gone before Ahab and announced to him that it wasn't going to rain for three and a half years. Now you have to understand, Israel was in a place of great pain. They were, they were, they were in a place of great despondency. Um, they had walked away from the Lord. They were mixed. They were sort of half-worshipping God, but half-worshipping Baal. And Elijah was praying for them to experience revival. And he goes before Ahab and he announced to him that it's not going to rain for three and a half years unless until he gives the word, prophetic word, that it will. And for three and a half years it didn't rain. We just said it's not going to rain until I give the word. So for three and a half years it doesn't rain. He spends some time by the brook Cherith. When the brook dries up he goes and he spends the rest of the time in Zarephath, this woman uh, who has a son. And God does these supernatural things every day. And in that place God uses him to raise that boy from the dead. It's the first time in Scripture that we have that miracle taking place. It was the life of Elijah. Now God used circumstances and situations to maneuver him, to place him and position him where God could use him. And all the time when he was by the brook Cherith, and the birds, the ravens were bringing him bread and bringing him water, I mean bringing him bread every day, twice a day, and meat. He was um, advancing in grace because he was having to trust God for this unusual miracle every day. When he was with the woman in Zarephath who had no food, and yet every day, no matter how much they ate that meal, the, the, the flour and the oil, it re- replicated every day. It was filled again every day. And he was probably there more than a couple of years, and God did that miracle. He was advancing in grace, learning how to trust God for the impossible. And then God used him to raise up boys from the dead. And after the boy was raised from the dead, then the Lord comes to him and he says, Elijah says, Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So after three and a half years, you have to understand, Ahab wasn't his friend. Ahab blamed him for the drought and all the suffering they were going through. And so Ahab had been looking for him, even among surrounding nations, because he wasn't very happy with him. Yet God tells Elijah to take this risk. Go show yourself to Ahab, and I'll bring rain on the earth. Now that's the only instruction that he had. And so he goes, he meets Obadiah, and he tells Obadiah to go find Ahab. And when he meets Ahab, he then gives Ahab these instructions. And what amazes me is that Ahab did everything he said. He tells Ahab, call all the nations here to Mount Carmel. And call all the, all the people of the nation of Israel to come here to Mount Carmel. And call all the prophets of Baal and the other prophets with like 850 in all. And he says, this is what we're going to do. And so when they all show up, he said, this is what we're going to do. He said, I want you guys to take an oxen. And I want you to kill the oxen. I want you to create an altar. I want you to lay that oxen on the altar. And I want you to cry out to your God to consume that uh, sacrifice with a supernatural fire. And then I'm going to call on my God 
because I'm going to have an ox and I'm going to create a heart. I'm going to create a, an altar. I'm going to lay him on all the wood, and I'm going to ask my God to consume from heaven this sacrifice. And whoever God does this, will know that's the true God. And all the people said that sounds good, which means that they were wanting to know the truth. Now, one of the interesting things about Ahab's story is that it says when he built his altar. He, he rebuilt an altar that had been from God, a God, an altar to God that had been torn down. So to understand, Ahab believed, God believed, he, he did this miracle in a place that had once belonged to him, that God believed still belonged to him. You need to understand, God believes every human being belongs to him. And the Lord will use us to confront people and places because God wants back what he believes belongs to him. Jesus gave his life for the whole world. And so they cry out for the fire. Fire didn't come. Ahab cries out for the fire. The fire comes. He pours water, gallons of water around the fire. It licks up the, lives up the, all the wood, licks up the, the sacrifice, consumes the water. The fire is so hot, it consumes the water. There's not even any water left. Let me just read this little place to you from um, 1 Kings, if I can find it. And he says in verse 37, he says, Answer me, O God, that this people may know that you, the Lord, art God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. And before that, he said, prayed again, he said, Lord, answer me, God of Israel, and show these people that I'm your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. And then God sent the fire. Now, here's the point that I love about that, is that when God first told Ahab, gave him instructions, he just said, go show yourself, I mean to Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. That's all the instructions that he had. So he just radically obeyed. But somewhere along the way, God said, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you the fine print. There's a miracle I'm going to do, and I'm going to put your reputation and everything at stake. It's going to be a ridiculous thing you're going to be called to do. Because he said, Lord, show them that I've done all these things at your word. See, here's the deal, is that if we'll just obey God, if we'll just, if, if we're in Walmart or whatever, and God, we sent somebody's there, and we'll just obey God, and all we know is go over there and ask that person that they need to be healed or whatever. Or go over there and talk to that person. We go, what? Just go. And then God will fill in the blanks. Because if he told you the first, it might scare you to death. You might not go. Um, but to have your head crowned like Mount Carmel is this. Is to have the mindset of Mount Carmel and the mindset of Elijah. And if God's going to use us to harvest, you may have a belly full of harvest. But if God's going to use you for harvest, there's several things you've got to understand. One is this. Um... Flowing out of the fact that you know your identity in Christ, we have to be reminded of this. To have your head crowned like Mount Carmel is to understand this. Is to know and understand your assignment. We talked about that earlier. That you're called to bring heaven to earth one person at a time. I love what Ms. Um, Heidi Baker says. That she, what she, she says that they... 
they reached the world, but they stopped for the one. Jesus died for the world, but he lived for the one. If you remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he went out of his way to go a place to a place that Jews didn't go. Jews didn't pass through Samaria. They went around Samaria because they had great prejudices against them. But Jesus intentionally went to Samaria, encountered a woman who's there drinking water, getting water in the middle of the day. Nobody gets water in the middle of the day. It's too hot. It's like 115 degrees there. Everybody gets water at the well early in the morning or late in the afternoon just before sun goes, uh, goes down because it's cooler. But because of her lifestyle, she was in a position out of such shame that she went where nobody else would be there to get water. Now here's the thing that's cool. I want you to understand. Any of you tonight who are carrying shame and you think that somehow because you're carrying shame of stuff that you've done, that somehow you can't know God's best. It was the very shame that this woman carried. It was part of what attracted God to go to her and change her life. Her shame didn't push him away. He saw beyond her shame and knew her heart. And he shows up in the middle of the day and sends his disciples away because he knew they weren't ready for this. He's a Jewish man. He's not supposed to speak to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman. He asks her for a drink and then has this conversation with her. And then he tells her, what he, he tells her this thing. He says, I'm, <laughs> he says, go tell your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, that's true because you've been married five times. And the one you're living with is not your husband. Now what was that? Was that Jesus as God performing a miracle? No. If you remember last night, he was in union with the Father. That was Jesus as the Son of Man, allowing the Holy Spirit to minister through him. It wasn't a physical healing. He just simply released supernatural grace. He revealed the reality of the kingdom of God. He spoke into her life supernaturally these words of knowledge that nobody could know other than God and her changed her life. She ended up being an instrument of revival that brought all of Sychar to Christ. That's harvest. That's sharing the gospel. It might be an act of love where somebody has a flat tire and you're stopping and the passion of Christ and the compassion of Christ it, it, um, moves you to stop and to be inconvenienced enough to help them. And in that moment of laid down love, he might speak a word to you to say to them, is there something going on in your body that you need healing for? Or, is God showing me something? I could be wrong, but I just keep seeing something. I see a five-year-old little girl and got really hurt and rejected and just been going through some stuff and God just wants to heal you. Now, what if she says, no, that's not me? Well, one, she, couldn't have, she might not be telling you the truth because she's embarrassed. But two, what if she says no and it's not true? What have you lost? Is love worth it? You with me? When was the last time you did something like that? And if you didn't, if all your Christian life is just about you feeling good and you doing, if it's all about sacrament and liturgy and you doing good, then you miss the point. God set you free that you might be the instrument through which he sets other people free. Because they understand your language really well. You carry heaven into every circumstance. 
or maybe it's in the grocery store standing in line or whatever. Um, but to have the mindset of Mount Carmel is one, to know that your assignment, and it never changes and it's every day, is to bring heaven to earth one person at a time. Look at all the people that Jesus ministered to, and yet he goes out of the way, inconvenience for this one single person. But look how the look at the the consequences of ministering that one person, all the people that she touched because Jesus encountered her. People need to encounter Jesus, and you're the only body he has. You're the only set of lips he has. You're the only heart he has, the only eyes he has, the only ear he has. You're the feet he has to walk with, the hands he has to work with. You're the all he's got. You're the body of Christ. Another thing about the mindset of Mount Carmel of chapter 18 is that when you have that mindset, you actually believe that you carry the authority of heaven into every situation. That if you walk into a room, if you go into a hospital room, into ICU, that you've been invited to come to check on somebody. When you get in there and they tell you, as you walk, they say, you, we've been told that if there's a million to one odds of him or her surviving the night, because you're in Christ, the moment you walk through that door, the odds change. Now, if you don't believe that, God can't use you. Because everything in the Christian life works by faith. And you say, well, Bishop, are you telling me that therefore every time I pray for them, they're going to get healed? That's what I'm after. Because that's what I see the biblical model. <laughs> but I'd rather one in a hundred get healed than not nobody at all. Or they get better or whatever. You understand? Or maybe the miracle is going to be the people who are waiting there. You know, God can work and do work in their hearts as they're hurting and grieving. But the point is, is that when if you understand that you're in Christ and that you literally carry the resurrected Jesus into Walmart and the open heaven that Jesus lives under, then your presence makes a radical difference. It changes the odds for everybody in that place. What we simply have to do is lift up our eyes and hear the Holy Spirit to say who and when we're supposed to talk to. To have the mindset of Mount Carmel is that, and think about what Elijah did. Elijah went into that place. God said, go show yourself to Ahab. I sent around the earth. He goes there and starts bossing everybody around. Why would Ahab do what he said? When he told Ahab, tell all the nation to come here. Why did Ahab to say, no, as a matter of fact, you're under arrest? What happened? And then when all the prophets show up, he tells them, this is what we're going to do, and this is what you're going to do and how we're going to do it. Why did they listen to him? Because there's an anointing on him that caused the godless and the powers of darkness to bend, to bend their knee at the authority that he carried. See, we, were so, we walk into these situations so afraid of what might happen to us, not knowing that the devil is terrified of what might happen to him and with them if you and I understand who we are in Christ. 
Elijah carried the authority of heaven into that situation and understood when God gave him the details that attempting the impossible is imperative to carrying out the assignment. Hear me again, so let's make it personal. To have your head crown you like Mount Carmel is to, care, to, to believe that you, every situation that you walk into, you carry the authority of heaven. When you stand in front of a person, you carry the authority of heaven. And that attempting the impossible with that person by faith is imperative to the assignment to bring heaven to earth. It's imperative. See, again, I... For, like, for... Yeah, this is going to sound irresponsible. Whether or not this parish grows numerically is way down the list of what's important to me. What I want you to do is be the life of Christ in your home and in the community. And the rest of it takes care of itself. He'll tell his story, whatever that story is. Ten people, ten thousand people. That's up to him. But none of us are called to live cloistered Christian lives. I never have gotten that. John says in John 3 that Jesus was from above. He who comes from above is above all. And he simply bore witness of what he saw and heard. You understand that because you come from above, because you're born from above, because you're in union with Christ, you are above all. You have authority over every sickness, over every condition, over every circumstance, over every environment. And I refuse, I refuse, I refuse to waddle my way into heaven collecting spiritual social security. And I've told you this story before. When I, when, when I went on some cruises some years ago, leaving I did, and a lot of the bishops were on the cruises, and I discovered, how many have been on a cruise before here? There's a thing called the Lido deck. I think every ship has a Lido deck. Lido deck has swimming pools, but they also have the buffet, where everybody goes to the buffet. But the cruise line that we were on was Holland America Cruise Line. And the Holland America Cruise Line was a wonderful cruise line, but a lot of elderly people go there. And I didn't realize how mean elderly people could be. Fighting, because they had this little casing of no sugar added desserts. About five different kinds. And buddy, they would kill each other for that last piece of no sugar added apple pie. And I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I will not die. I will not spend my life on the Lido deck spiritually waiting to go to heaven. See, Elijah believed that he was in charge <laughs> and therefore he dictated the terms of the battle. Never be impressed with the enemy. Don't let him dictate the terms of the battle through fear and intimidation. You dictate the terms of the battle. Not the enemy. Every one of you, if you're in Christ, you're hardwired for the impossible. And the impossible that is to be manifested through you because you're in Christ isn't so You'll feel good, though it's awesome. It's fun to watch. It's so that others can be set free and their lives can be changed. For us not to go after that is one of the great signs of spiritual immaturity and selfishness. That we carry the ability of Jesus, the capacity of Christ to do something about this, and we don't go for it because it's inconvenient or we're scared.
Elijah believed that if he just showed up, the God of the impossible would, and the hearts of the people would be turned to God. Because that's what he prayed. God, show them that their hearts would be turned to you. That's the whole point. Why do we want to see people get healed? And I'm not talking about now within the church. I want to see them, us get healed too, but I don't think until we do, we're not going to give away what we haven't freely received too much. But I want to see people get healed or experience the, the supernatural love of God in serving them. And in the process, if God wants to give a word of knowledge, wants to do this or whatever he might do, like with the woman at the well, you know, I want to see that happen in their lives because I'm a citizen of the kingdom. And I want, to, I want them to experience. And I want to, and I, and here's the deal. I can do something about it because I'm in Christ. Because Christ can do something about it. And I'm the body through which he does something about it. All right, I need to finish this up. Um, there's that place in Song of Solomon 7 where it says, your tresses are like purple gold and God is... Um, let me just read this. This is encouraging. Um, your flocks of your head are like purple threads the cl- and the, the, the locks of your head are like purple thread and the Lord, the King, is captivated by your tresses. Purple always speaks about authority. Surrendering to carrying the authority of power of Jesus into a situation. It says the Lord is captivated by your tresses. That word there in Hebrew... Captivated means he's obligated himself to. That when you and I walk into a situation, knowing we carry the authority of heaven and the capacity for the impossibility to happen, because we're in Christ, when we walk that out, God obligates himself to that kind of obedience and faith. I just think that's cool. So here's the only thing we have to do. This is um, from um, the woman with the well story. When the boys got back from Sychar and they brought food, they found that Jesus had been talking to this woman. They were offended. And Jesus said to them in verse 34, He said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And he just said, My food is to accomplish his assignment. Did you not say there were yet four months, and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white unto harvest. That Song of Solomon passage in chapter 7 says this. Just before the head being crowned like Mount Carmel, your nose or um, your eyes are like the pools in Heshbon by the gates of Bath Rabim, and your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon which faces towards Damascus. Um, that's a lot of flowery language, but let me give you what it means. He says here, um, your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gates of Bathrabim. The word Bathrabim is a Hebrew word means a daughter of multitude. And it was the main pool as they would come in the gates of the city and all this multitude of people would pass by. He says, your eyes are always open as you pass, as the pa- multitudes pass by, you're always looking for, you're lifting up your eyes for harvest. And your nose is like the Tower of Babylon, face towards Damascus. Damascus is where the enemy came from. It says, and you're always, your eyes are open for opportunities, and you're sniffing out 
where the enemy has established a foothold. That's what happened in chapter 18. The enemy had established a foothold in a place that God believed belonged to him. The enemy had gained a victory in a place where God believed belonged to him. It had once been an altar to God there. Every human being that we meet who's suffering of any kind, the enemy's gained a victory in a place that God believes belongs to him and he wants it taken back. And he's given you the authority and you the ability to do that because you're in Christ. We just simply have to keep our eyes open, keep our nose to the wind, and discern where the enemy has brought about brokenness in a person's life, and then go confront it in Jesus' name and see impossibilities bow before his presence and his power that you carry. Okay? Well, Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All righty, guys, let's do some stuff. <laughs>